belief in Christ, belief or trust in Christ, connects us to his mighty healing power, but unbelief cuts us off. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Well, as we start off today, folks, uh, I have a little confession for you, uh, and you might want to consider getting a new pastor after I tell you this. Um, Do I have all of your attention here now? So, you know, there have been times when I have played a, a little trick on Doug. Doug is the man who cleans the building during the week here. There are times when I like to play a little trick with him. And that is, he will be down the hallway in one of the rooms vacuuming away there, and I will hear him there, and I like to go out into the hallway and unplug the cord, you know, and then go back into my office real, real quick there. But that's a, that's a terrible thing to do, don't you think? You know, it's a terrible thing. You know, and, and I think it's funny, uh, but he doesn't. You know, he sees it a little bit differently than I do. Uh, and by the way, oddly enough, that stock photo there really does look like my hand. And if, in case you're wondering afterwards, I will show you. We'll put it up there. It is amazing. It really does look like my hand there. But now you might be wondering, though, what in the world does that have to do with our message today? Well, this we are going to be talking today from God's Word and seeing the healing power of Jesus. And while he did not always require faith on the part of the person being healed, oftentimes, though, he did. And belief, then, or faith, is what can connect us, then, to Jesus' mighty power, to his healing power. But unbelief can cut us off. It's like that cord there, faith plugged in, connects us to Jesus' power, but unbelief is like unplugging that and cutting it off then from that. So today then, we are continuing in our series, Unique, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have been going, rather than following one gospel like Matthew or Mark, we're looking at a harmony of them, putting all of these accounts together. And this book, One Perfect Life by John McCarthy, has done a terrific job of harmonizing all the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus and putting them together into one flowing chronological account for us here. So for today then, I'm asking, are you connected or cut off? Are you connected or cut off? In our passage, then, we'll be looking at a harmony, then, from Matthew 9 and Matthew or, uh, 13, as well as Mark 5, Mark 6, and Luke 8. All of those put together to tell us this story of these events in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here is the key idea. Here is the main idea that I want all of us to take away from the message here today is this, is that belief in Christ, belief or trust in Christ, connects us to his mighty healing power, but unbelief cuts us off. Belief connects us to him, to his power. Unbelief cuts us off then from that. Before we look at our first text then here, a little context then, as we saw last week, Jesus had calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee as he and the disciples were crossing from the west side over to the east side of the lake. 
And when they arrived on the eastern shore, they were met by two demonized men. And Jesus cast a legion, a great number of demons, out of one of the men. And the demons who were expelled from the man were allowed to enter into a herd of pigs. And those pigs then promptly ran down the side of the hill and drowned in the Sea of Galilee. And when the owners, the the caretakers of those herds then saw this, then they were Gentiles, of course, they were afraid of Jesus. And they asked him then to leave their country. But before Jesus left the man from whom the demons had been expelled requested to go along with Jesus. Wouldn't you want to go along with him too? He wanted to, but Jesus instructed the man to stay there in his own country and to tell the people all that God had done for him, how God had had compassion on him. And remember he said, I think that is a great example of simple evangelism for all of us. Sometimes we wonder, how can I share my faith? And we think we have to have all these formulas memorized. We have to have a thousand Bible verses memorized. We might get asked some question that we can't answer. We don't have the answer for that. We can be fearful of that. But yet I think a simple example is told for us right here by Jesus himself when he simply says, go and tell people all that God has done for you, how he has shown compassion on you. That is a wonderful way to proclaim the good news of hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pick up from there then. We're told here in our text. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him and welcomed him. For they were all waiting for him, and he was by the sea. And while he spoke certain things to them, behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell down at Jesus' feet and worshipped him, and begged him earnestly to come to his house, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. But as he went, a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, And had suffered many things from many physicians, and could not be healed by any. And she had spent all that she had, all her livelihood, and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she suddenly came behind him in the crowd and touched the border of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. And immediately her flow of blood stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? When all denied it, Peter and those disciples with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. 
And he looked around to see who who had done this thing. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the whole truth, the reason she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And the woman was made well from that hour. And while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe and she will be made well. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and the father and mother of the girl. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult, and the flute players and the noisy crowd who wept and wailed and mourned for her loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? Do not weep. Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But when the crowd was outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. And then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, Arise. And immediately her spirit returned, and the girl arose and walked, for she was twelve years of age. And he commanded that she be given something to eat, and her parents were overcome with great amazement. But he charged them strictly to tell no one what had happened. And the report of this went out into all that land. I want to talk about belief. Belief or faith first. You know, in the scriptures, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, gives us a definition of faith there. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we can say that faith then is confident assurance. It's confident assurance in future things and in unseen things. And this would be the most concise biblical definition of faith here. But what else does the Bible say about faith or belief? Now, the word, the Greek word used most often in the New Testament for faith is pistis, and it indicates a belief or a conviction with the complementary idea of trust. That is, faith is not just simply a conviction of the mind, but it engages the whole of the person, including trust. That yes, you believe it in your mind, but you are trusting him as well. So faith then, it's not merely something in our minds, an intellectual thing, but it's a belief then that leads to personal trust and action. As James 2.26 says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith 
apart from works is dead. So James then talks about demonstrating or showing his faith by his works. And often then what we do says more about what we believe than what we say. So belief or faith then is an active trust in God. It's an active trust in God, a belief then that what he says is true and that results in action on our part. So in our text here today, some that we've just read and others that we'll be seeing, we were going to see four examples for us, four examples of faith that unleashed Christ's mighty power. This first one here, we see that belief healed a woman. Now, let me make it clear. Her faith didn't heal her. Belief didn't heal her. Who healed her? Jesus. It was Jesus. It was Jesus' power that healed her. But it was her faith, though, that unleashed the power of Jesus into her life then. And so this example, then, we see is this woman who reaches out to touch just the hem of his garment, knowing if she could just do that, she would be healed. I want us to engage in a little uh, imagination here today, a little uh, thinking, imagine, putting yourself into your, in the position of this woman. Imagine for a moment that you are that woman. And let's engage today in a just a little bit of creative license here. I say a little bit. Most of we're going to follow the text, but uh, maybe just a little bit of creative license here. It says, so here, imagine you are this woman, and you have had this medical affliction for many years. It's some kind of chronic internal hemorrhage, bleeding. But it is not only a physical affliction which you suffer, though, Because of this, because of this constant bleeding, it has left you ceremonially unclean under Jewish law. And because of that, then, you have been shunned. You have been shunned by people, including even your own family. And you have been excluded from the synagogue and from the temple. And in your desperation to be healed, You have suffered many things from many physicians. You've been to all of them. You've been to all of these different doctors, and you've received a variety of treatments, but nothing has helped. You know, we know today, as as advanced as our medicine is, and we are thankful for that, doctors don't always have the answers, do they? And they can't always heal us no matter what. And sometimes you go to this doctor says one thing, this doctor says another thing, right? It's showing our limits and the limits of human beings and the limits of our medicine here. So she had been to these different doctors and no one could help her. In fact, sometimes their treatments not only didn't help you at all, they made your condition worse. And you have spent all of your money All that you have, all of your livelihood, you have spent on this, and still nothing has helped. You've suffered for years. You're an outcast. You're broke. But then Jesus comes near. You've heard about the mighty miracles that he has done. And you know that if you can just get to him, You'll be healed. But there's so many people. He's surrounded by a 
a crowd, a multitude of people constantly. How can you get to him? How can you see him? How can you talk to him? And then it occurs to you, perhaps, perhaps, if you can just somehow work your way through the crowd and and get just close enough to reach out and touch his garment, you'll be healed. And so you work your way through the crowd. And there he is. There he is. Just a little closer, just a little closer. Reach out. Reach out. Touch his robe. Touch his robe. And you do. You've touched his robe. And instantly, you know you've been healed. You can feel it inside of you. You know after all this time, you have finally been delivered instantaneously, miraculously healed. What joy you feel in your heart. But now, what's that? He stopped. And he turned around. And he's asking, who touched him? Is he upset? Are you in trouble? Is he mad? Oh no, he sees you. He's looking at you. He is zeroed in on you. And you come before him, fearing and trembling. You fall before him. And you admit it was you. And you tell him why you touched him, all of it. You tell him the whole embarrassing truth. But Jesus doesn't scold you. He looks at you with the purest, most powerful love you have ever seen and says, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Yes, sheer joy. Praise to God. Praise to God. So belief raised or healed a woman, but it also raised a dead girl. I want us once again, let's engage once again in just a little bit of that creative license here and put yourself in the shoes of that that man, that ruler of the synagogue, Jairus. So you are one of the rulers. You're one of the, the leaders of the synagogue on this northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, the area here where Jesus has been doing so much of his teaching and and healing ministry. You have heard Jesus teach, and you have been amazed at how he teaches, how he teaches as one who has authority, not like how you've heard some of the other teachers teach, as they simply quote, one rabbi or another, it's different with him. He teaches with singularly unique power, insight, and conviction. And your heart, your heart comes alive when he opens the word of God to you. You remember how one day Jesus had expelled a demon from a man in your synagogue But now, your 12-year-old daughter, your only daughter, is sick. And she is so sick that she's near the point of death. But then you hear, Jesus is back in town. 
He can help your daughter. You know he can. And so you go to him. You go to see him. You fall down at his feet and you worship him. And you beg him earnestly to come to your house. You tell him that your little daughter lies at the point of death. Come, come and lay your hands on her, Jesus, and she will live. Jesus says yes. And he starts heading toward your house. And you're so excited. Jesus is coming to your house. He will heal your daughter. But along the way, you receive terrible news. Your daughter has died. It's too late. People are telling you, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? You're heartbroken. You're devastated. Your only daughter is dead. If only you had gotten there with Jesus sooner. But now, what's this? Jesus is speaking to you. What is he saying? He says, do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. What? It's not too late? Can he do even this? You had no doubt that he could heal her, but, but healing her sickness is one thing. She's dead. But Jesus says, only believe. She will be made well. These words echo in your heart, and you say, yes. Yes, Lord, I believe. I believe. You arrive at your home, and already all the mourners have gathered. Uh-oh, this is right, I heard back there. <laughs> they are playing music. Not happy music, sad music. People are loudly weeping and wailing. And your heart wants to cry out in mourning, too. But Jesus said, do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. Yes, you believe. You believe. But it's hard, isn't it? Jesus rebukes the crowd. He tells them that they need not make such commotion and weep so. The girl is not dead. She's only sleeping. The crowd laughs. They ridicule him. They know the girl isn't sleeping. She's dead. It's too late. But the crowd doesn't understand that Jesus was speaking figuratively. Yes, he knew the girl was dead. But he knew that he was going to awaken her from it that she would soon awaken from death, death, just as one might awaken from a night's sleep. He puts the crowd away, and now it's just you and your wife, the girl's mother, Peter, James, and John, and of course, Jesus. What is he going to do? He goes over to where your dear daughter is lying. He takes her hand. And he says to her, Talitha kumi. It's Aramaic, and it means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, your little girl's eyes open. 
Your eyes open even wider in amazement. She arises and walks. And Jesus commands that she be given something to eat. Yes, yes, get her something to eat, but your broken heart is now so full of joy and amazement. And Jesus tells you not to tell anyone what has happened, but the report of this will soon go out into all that land. How can you not tell anyone about this? When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. See, belief opened blind eyes. Belief in Jesus healed a woman. Belief in Jesus raised a dead girl. And now belief in him opened blind eyes. I want you to put on that creative license cap again, will you? You and your friend are blind. If you would like, close your eyes. Close your eyes and just listen now. You have heard about Jesus. You believe he is the Messiah. You have heard that he has done many great works, including restoring sight to the blind. Perhaps now you and your friend can be healed by Jesus. You've heard that he is in the area, and so you make your way over to the place where you are told he is. As he is leaving that place, you you follow him, and you cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us. You call him Son of David because you know that is a term for the Messiah, and you believe he is the Messiah. And you know, too, that the scriptures have prophesied that Messiah would perform signs and wonders. You've heard that Jesus has healed other blind people. Perhaps he will open your eyes, too. He has gone into a house. You follow him there. And you're now in the presence of the Messiah. You want your sight. And Jesus says to you, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, yes, Lord, we believe. You feel his hands on your eyes. And you sense the incredible power in those hands. And Jesus says, according to your faith, let it be to you. Your eyes are opened. You can see. You can open your eyes now if they're closed. 
And wow, what amazing power this Jesus, the Messiah, has. But then he tells you, see that no one knows about it, but as you depart, you just can't help yourself. You spread the news about him in all that country. So belief opened to blind eyes. It also then expelled a demon. As Jesus went out, a man was brought to him. This man was demonized and unable to speak. Jesus cast the demon out. But once the demon had left, his mute mouth was opened and he could speak. See, the man's mouth was open so that he was able to speak. And apparently, one of the ways that this demon had afflicted this man was to make him mute. But when Jesus expelled the demon, the man was able to speak then. So we have seen then in our text today four examples, four examples of belief today. But for someone who believes, there's always someone Many someones, in fact, who do not believe, right? And so the remainder of our text here today speaks of those who did not believe. I want to consider unbelief, unbelief. If faith is active trust in God, belief that what he says is true, that he can indeed do what he says he can do, unbelief then is a lack of trust in God. There may be outright denial of even the very existence of God, Or there may be an acknowledgement that God is real, but there is no personal active trust in God. So next then we'll look at a couple of accounts of unbelief and then the consequences of that unbelief. We see here in the first example that unbelief blasphemed the power of God. Unbelief blasphemed the power of God. We're told that as they went out and this this, uh, mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. When the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. The multitudes marveled, saying, we've never seen anything like this in Israel before. But the Pharisees, the Pharisees, what? The religious leaders, the spiritual authorities, the experts saw all of this too. And did they marvel? No, they cried. They cried out against Jesus, right? They didn't like him at all. They had a temper tantrum every time he did this, right? They marveled. The crowds marveled, and they got upset. But we've got to explain this somehow. He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons, by Satan. That's where he gets his power, Satan. They couldn't deny the reality. Clearly, Jesus had great power, but they did not want to believe in him as Messiah. But they couldn't deny his mighty works. So how do you explain it? I know. He's doing it by the power of Satan. And then attributing the works of God to Satan, they were blaspheming God blaspheming, that word there in the text is blasphemeo, blasphemeo. It literally means to speak evil, to speak evil, evil out of the mouth. Blasphemy then is to slander or to speak profanely of sacred things. 
And there is nothing more sacred than God himself, is there? So they were speaking evil, speaking profanely of the good works of God by attributing it to Satan. We saw this in a previous text, how Jesus referred to this as the unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Spirit. And we saw, what is this unforgivable sin, this blasphemy? Well, it is this final, unrepentant unbelief. That is the only unforgivable sin, is final, unrepentant unbelief. And that was the condition of the hearts of these Pharisees. They saw the Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh, fulfilling prophecy, working mighty signs of wonders, signs and wonders, and then conclude he's an agent of the devil. What a black, unbelieving heart. Then he went out from there and came to his own country. His own country, his town, where he grew up was called what? Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? What wisdom is this which is given to him, such mighty, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And are not his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled at their unbelief. So unbelief unbelief blasphemed the power of God. Unbelief on the part of the Pharisees blasphemed the power of God, attributing his mighty works to Satan. But now we see here how unbelief rejected the Son of God Unbelief rejected the Son of God. Jesus came to his own country, Nazareth. Now, he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, but he was raised in Nazareth of Galilee. And when Jesus taught in the synagogue there in Nazareth, his hometown, the people were amazed at how he spoke. They knew of the mighty works he had done, but wait a minute, something's, there's, something's not computing here. We know this man. He grew up here. He's the carpenter's son. We know, we, we know Joseph. We remember him. We know his mother, Mary. Aren't these his brothers and his sisters here? How in the world can he be speaking like this and doing these things? He's just the carpenter's son from Nazareth. 
Nothing good comes out of Nazareth, right? Even we know that, and we live in Nazareth, right? How could this be? I think actually the reaction of the people of Nazareth gives us some insights then into the humility of Christ, doesn't it? That here he is, all of those years, he is the Son of God in in the flesh, and yet to the people of his town, he seems so ordinary, one of them. He just seemed like an ordinary man from their town, and, and now he's the Messiah? the son of the carpenter and, and Mary, how could he be the Messiah? We know him. And once again, though, in spite of his signs and wonders, people refused to believe. They refused to believe. There was a consequence then for it too then, what? Unbelief cut people off. It cut people off then from the healing power of God. So as a result of their unbelief, the people in Nazareth were cut off from the healing power of God. Text tells us, now he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. Now I want to ask you, was it impossible for Jesus to do mighty works there because he needs people to believe? No, he doesn't need that. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me to do anything he does. He doesn't need our faith to do anything he does. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe, and he can do anything he wills to do. But the fact is, and sometimes he does, doesn't he? In spite of what we think or believe, or even when we don't want it, he does it anyway, doesn't he? But the fact is, he often chooses to work in conjunction with the faith of people. He does not need us to believe, but he sometimes chooses not to work in us without it. And so here were all of these people rejecting him because we know him. He can't be the Messiah. And Jesus marveled at their unbelief. What does it take to get God to marvel at you? Unbelief is one of them right here. Some of you are wondering, okay, I see this, so are you saying if I just believe Jesus is going to unleash his power in my life right now and he's going to heal me, he's going to do whatever I want? Well, he may. I've seen it. But we need to talk for a little bit here about, I'm going to say, physical healing and the sovereignty of God. Physical healing and the sovereignty of God. I wonder, how do we read texts like these today and say, now, does this happen? Does does Jesus still heal today? What do you think? Does Jesus still heal today? Yes, he does. I've seen it. But is it the case, though, that if you just believe He'll definitely do it. If you just have enough faith, he'll do it. And if you don't get healed or if you don't receive the answer to what you've been praying for, well, obviously you just don't have enough faith, right? Wrong. Wrong. We need to talk about that here. You know, I saw something. I just want to read this to you here. I think it's uh, someone who has given an excellent uh, reflection on this question. I'm wondering, well, why doesn't God heal everyone? Why does he just heal everyone? 
Listen to, listen to what he says. He says, it is not always God's will to heal a person physically. A person may sincerely pray and truly have faith that God can heal. But if it is not God's will to provide the healing at that time, then no healing will come. Sometimes God's blessings come in other ways besides physical healing. If it were always God's will for people to be healed, then everyone would be healed every time he or she became ill. If good health were always God's will, then Christians should never die. We can't blame someone's malady on a lack of faith, for we know biblically that God sometimes uses illness to accomplish his will. Also, it's not just wayward believers who get sick. Paul left Trophimus sick in Miletus, 2 Timothy 4.20. And Paul himself had a physical ailment that the Lord declined to heal. Often Christians have an oversimplified idea of healing. They think that if they are sick, they have only to ask God to heal them. And because God loves them, he will heal them straight away. Healing is seen as proof of a person's faith and of God's love. And this idea persists in some circles. In spite of the truth that every mother knows, a parent does not give her child everything he asks for every time, no matter how much she loves him. Johnny Erickson Tata struggled with this issue for a long time. And as she recounts in her book, Johnny, she sought physical healing of her quadriplegia. She prayed and fully believed that God would heal her. In her words, I certainly believed. I was calling up my girlfriend saying, next time you see me, I'm going to be running up your sidewalk. God's going to heal me. Yet Johnny is still in a wheelchair today. 55 years after the accident that left her paralyzed, God has still not healed her. Her perspective is one of great faith. She says, God may remove your suffering, and that will be great cause for praise. But if not, he will use it. He will use anything and everything that stands in the way of his fellowship with you. So let God mold you and make you, transform you from glory to glory. That is the deeper healing. Some feel that God will never heal anyone miraculously today. Others feel that God will always heal a person if she or he has enough faith. But God will not be put into either box. And he makes a very interesting point here for us. He says, we need to understand that healings, even in the Bible, are very rare indeed. For the first 2,500 years of biblical history, there is no mention of any healings whatsoever. And then during the life of Abraham, we have a possible healing, although it is only implied in Genesis 12, 17 through 20. Then we have to wait until the life of Moses, who performs a number of signs to authenticate his authority as God's leader. However, the only healing associated with Moses is Miriam's cleansing from leprosy. In the covenant God gave to Israel, there were a number of provisions to regulate their lives. And there's an emphasis on physicality and material things in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 28, God promises to reward Israel's faithfulness with freedom from disease. And this is the clue to the meaning of miracles in the Bible. 
God promised Israel health, long life, children, flocks, corn, grapes, etc., and victory over their enemies if they stayed faithful to their Lord. At the same time, God threatened them with sickness, barrenness, disease, drought, famine, the loss of livestock, and enemy occupation if they forsook the Lord. And this is the context of Israel's relationship with sickness and healing. The promise to be kept free from every disease in Deuteronomy 7.15 was specifically part of the Mosaic Covenant with Israel under the theocracy. Such a promise is not given to the church. With the coming of Christ, we have the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant and a reversal of the effects of Israel's spiritual backslidings. Wherever Christ went, he healed the sick. But this was not just because of kindness on his part. His healings were always a sign from heaven of Christ's authority as Messiah. He was giving Israel a taste of the kingdom of God. Those who refused his authority were often left sick. At the pool of Bethesda, for example, Jesus healed only one in a huge multitude. The apostles were also given the specific power to heal the sick, and for 37 years they went everywhere healing those who heard their message. And again, their miracles, including healing, were confirmation of the truth of the gospel the apostles proclaimed. But the 12 apostles didn't heal everyone either. Often there were Christians left unwell in spite of apostolic power. Paul says to Timothy, use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Why didn't Paul just lay hands on Timothy and heal him? It wasn't because Timothy didn't have enough faith. It was because it was not God's will to heal Timothy that way. The healing ministry was not for anyone's personal convenience. Rather, it was a sign from God to the Jews of the Old Covenant primarily of the validity of the apostles' message. So we are not living in the apostolic days today. Of course, God can and does heal today when he wants to. And we've seen it, examples in this church. But the question we need to ask in any given situation is, what does God want Does he desire to heal the individual in this life? Or does he have another plan to show his glory through weakness? And someday, all sickness and death will be eradicated. Johnny Erickson Tata will walk again. Until then, there is a a greater healing, the cleansing of sinful hearts that God performs every day. You know, so God does not always answer our prayers as we want, but God is always pleased with our faith. God always rewards faith here or at the judgment seat of Christ. But whatever way he chooses to answer here and now, be assured, be assured that no moment of trust, no act of faith will ever be forgotten. So what? What do you want me to take away from this? I want to remind us that belief in Christ connects us to his mighty healing power, but unbelief cuts us off. And that healing may be physical, but oftentimes it's what? It's spiritual. And and I absolutely guarantee you that if you've put your trust in Christ, you absolutely are going to be delivered from every ailment, every physical ailment you might suffer now or ever. 
with eternal life and the resurrection of the body. So I'd ask you, do you need to plug in? Do you need to plug into the cord of belief? Trust in God, in God's purposes, his eternal purposes. Have you received eternal healing in Christ? That's the most important healing of all. What good is it to have your body healed now of some affliction, only then to be cut off and lost forever? Most importantly is receiving eternal spiritual healing. And yes, physical healing in the resurrected body that's received by faith in Christ. Active trust in him, in his life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. Have you received eternal healing in Christ? And I wonder, do you need Jesus' sovereign healing touch today? Maybe it's something physical, but maybe it isn't. Maybe it's something spiritual, emotional. Do you need to reach out and touch his garment today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that he has indeed indeed healed us of all of our afflictions through faith in him. And Lord, we know we will not always be delivered here in this life now of every affliction we might face. We will not always be healed of every disease here in these mortal bodies. But we thank you, though, Lord, that through faith in Jesus, we have received the healing, spiritual healing, and ultimately, Lord, physical healing in the resurrection of the body. Thank you, Lord, for that hope that we have. And I pray, Lord, if there's someone here, someone here today that needs your sovereign healing touch, that he or she would reach out to you now to touch the hem of your garment and to say, I believe, Lord Jesus. I trust you to do with me as you will. Be glorified, be honored in me. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.